So hi, Gunnar. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Good, good. I'm all Friday'd up. Um, yeah. So with, uh, people are uh, we we uh, in the past people have said, oh man, I love the interview shows. And then other people are like, oh, I I like it when it's just Dave and Gunnar uh, talking to each other. And and this is going to be a little bit of both, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so we do have a guest, but it's going to be with all three of us. So it'll be the Dave and Gunner show rather than the Dave or Gunner show. Right, Josh. So, um, yeah, so let's let's. Uh, so who do we have on the show today? Today we have uh, actually and an, uh, I'll call her a colleague and a friend uh, of mine, uh, Maha Shaikh, um, who I met uh, back when she was at the uh, London School of Economics. And she her uh, she's an academic. Uh, and her field of research uh, is in open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we figured uh, she's been doing uh, a great deal of work on uh, open source, the relationship between open source and organizations. Um, and uh, I figured it'd be great to spend maybe half an hour with her uh, and just uh, uh, get a chance to, to ask her about her research. Um, so we're mostly, you know, Dave, you and I talk to mostly kind of the practitioner side of the house, and rarely do we see uh, kind of how academics view the open source world. Um, so I thought it might be kind of fun to talk to Maha. Yeah, no, this is going to be like red meat for a lot of our uh, audience. I could imagine uh, David A. Wheeler's just smiling, sitting in his car, driving somewhere right now. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So uh, Maha, welcome. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Hi. Um, yeah. Thanks very much, Gunnar and Dave. And um, yeah, my name is Maha Sheikh. I've been, I've been studying open source for quite a few years now. It was throughout my, in fact, even my master's and my PhD. And now I still, well, it's interesting. People tell me, you know, that there are times in academia where you've got to start to have alternative disciplines or alternative areas that you need to move into. And yet somehow I still feel that open source, not only is it an extremely interesting phenomenon, but also there's still so much more to explore because people have, in academia have tended, tended to move from open source into crowdsourcing and crowdfunding, all equally relevant and very, very interesting areas as well. And yet there were so many issues about open source that we have yet mm-hmm. to explore which have so many implications for these other fields that are coming up as well. So, yeah, I really enjoy open source, and I've been doing it for a while. And, Gana, just to um, come back on, on your earlier statement, you've been amazing, seriously, um, throughout. Um, you know, I remember bugging you for interviews, for information, just to collect really interesting data from you, and the interviews with you were always so insightful. So I do appreciate all your support as well. Oh well, well, it's the least I could do, and uh, and thanks for complimenting me on my own show. I I, I like that very much. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, um, well, I, okay. So let's get started, Maha. Here's something I've I've never asked you, although we we've spoken many times over the last few years. Um, what is it that initially attracted you to this to this area of study? How did, how did you get in, introduced to it? Well, okay, this goes back a time, all right? So this is when open source was really just kicking off. It was early, and I had to do a dissertation topic. So we're talking really far back, okay, like my (laughs) master's dissertation. I had no idea what to do. And I just remember reading The Economist and and hearing about open source people and thinking, wow, you know, these people want to do software, write software, and help the world. And they're not, well, at least at that time, the, the, the sort of conversation around it was that they weren't being paid or they weren't directly being paid, which was true and probably is, uh, at least for some people still. And I just thought I need to explore this. And then just, it was just a very simple kind of, well, it was weird, actually, because I just sort of stumbled upon this idea. But then 
after doing my master's um, dissertation on this topic, I got really interested and I kept thinking, you know, it wasn't that I wanted to do a PhD. It's not that I came in with a clear idea that I was going to go and become, you know, an academic at one point. I did the PhD because I wanted to know more about open source. And I didn't know how else to do it. I didn't know what job would actually allow me to explore questions that were pure curiosity about how this works, why it works, and who are these people. And that's why I decided, well, the only place that's going to let me do it is a university where I pay to be there. So I... (laughs) And on that topic, and it, it's been a really cool journey so far. So, Maha, did, did you go into this as an economist looking at open source, or were you coming in from the information systems angle, like a computer person sort of view, and then the the uh, from that angle? Yeah, no, that's a good question because actually my computer science background is extremely limited. I had to do one course in my undergraduate, which was uh, software engineering related. Can't say I'm much of an expert in that area, as you'll probably find out the more you speak to me. Um, and nor am I an economist. I am very, very IS um, related, but also I had a background in what well, we used to read a lot about sociological theory and organizational theory. And that was my interest, which is why um, you'll find that my initial papers or my initial ideas were all about how do these communities actually come about? What is the nature of a community when it's in an online setting and so forth? So it was, it was very sociological, actually, my background. So help orient me in, the, in this world. So you've got, you've got sociology on one end, you have economics on the other, um, you have kind of organizational dynamics uh, over in kind of a third area, and your work seems to sit kind of at the intersection of those three things. Th- that suggests that uh, the study of open source... Uh, is is that is that kind of a niche thing, or is that uh, or is that now becoming a kind of a more popular area of study in those three fields? I think to, to take you back a little, mm-hmm. information systems itself is um, one of the newer disciplines, and there's always these arguments exactly where it stands as a field or a discipline. And I think because it has very few homegrown theories, we in the IS world tend to borrow quite heavily from sociology, organizational theory, and management in general as well, and beyond, not, you know, economics and so forth. So you, you find people going far, um, you know, far further afield than even that. But that's why I think many people in the IS world, especially IS as it's practiced and it, as it's um, studied in Europe, especially in the UK, this qualitative school of thought, it's very eclectic. So actually, I, I'm not sure if my study area is um, more niche, perhaps to an American audience, which it may well be. But uh, definitely in the UK, this would be the approach to study it, where it intersects, sorry, at uh, different spaces to be able to understand a phenomena that's far more complex than just um, being an economic world or a sociological or one or the other. It's always uh, a mixture. So you mentioned you mentioned a bias towards qualitative analysis, and it seems like open source is designed to thwart any kind of qualitative analysis. <laughs> is uh, is it, so? How do you how do you, how do you handle that? Um, uh, I know even even working at Red Hat, um, you know we make uh, we make valiant attempts to uh, to actually use data to analyze communities uh, for health and wellness and and things like that. And, and so I, I have some idea about how difficult that is. Is that your experience as well? I think um, for us, I was a qualitative researcher because that's how I was trained. But to be honest, in relation to open source, I think some of the, the there are 
different sets of questions you can ask, right, um, in, of this world that we all live in. And for me, open source is not, um, there's more than just how do they make money on these are questions that relate to the process of things happening, like how the nature of change. And those sort of questions, yes, you can measure change. Of course you can. But being a process there, so it's hard to sort of have this discussion without, um, I hope I'm not boring you because I'm going to get into, you know, a little bit of uh, academics here. Because the idea is that if things are changing in this world, and, and I'm looking purely at the phenomena of open source within a community setting or beyond even, if things are changing and moving all the time, it's hard to know when do you break some change. So you can, you know, in a company, you have far clearer structures. You have quarterly, um, I suppose, reports and all sorts of economic reports that you have to write. So everything in between those two reports is the period of time that you're assessing. And then you have points of call that tell you at this period, it was, um, you know, this was the profit margin and, and, and the next one, it's so forth and, and so on. But when, if you think about change as something that's ever going and there's no sense of real stability, and I see open source as a beautiful picture of that kind of change because it's little bits of change have to happen to keep something stable. So if you think about stability more as a sense of lots of changes happening to show and give you the appearance of stability, then that'll help you understand that for me, there was no other approach than doing qualitative because quantitative, it, it, useful and extremely important as it is, for me, the kind of questions I was posing to open source uh, as a phenomena were very, very qualitative related. They had to be based on questions of how things change and um, how um, do companies evaluate open source communities. And the how questions, you, you can have, um, you know, definitely you can have some some sort of quant uh, ideas there as well. But a lot of it also has to be very strongly explanatory. You know, how do these things happen? And that means text, qualitative text. The next thing I was going to ask you about is uh, what your kind of most surprising finding has been in your studies over the last uh, over the last several years. But I, I, I think you just answered that question because uh, you said something really important there, which is uh, it, that change is necessary in order to ensure the stability uh, of these of these projects or, or communities. Um, that is uh, that they have that they that they must constantly adapt in order to in order to kind of preserve their coherence. Can can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, when I was um, looking at open source communities, I, I looked at Linux. Now I know now everybody looks at Linux, and back then, seriously speaking, there weren't that many. So it's really hard to make a case for the fact that you know this is a beautifully successful um, open source community. And I accept also that there aren't that many of them. I mean, I mean there are enough, but you know there are. There are lots of open source communities, sadly, that don't kick off very much. And that's for various reasons, not open source related necessarily. But looking at, I remember there was a, do you remember Eric Raymond's book, um, The Cathedral and the Bazaar? And he, in one of the, and I, I'm, I'm probably misquoting, but I don't intend to, um, he talks about how out of all this um, this bizarre, this crazy, um, I think he calls it a cacophony of sounds and noises and God knows what, something really beautiful, qualitatively, um, you know, comes out and emerges as good, solid code. And that really struck a chord with me because then I wanted to explore how do we look at these communities and the different bits of change that happen inside them. So we, you know, we can see versions being released as an external person. So let's say I wasn't involved in an open source project and nor were you. You'd see versions being released. You'd know that things are moving in these communities. But inside, you know, 
how people are actually working to write code, whether it's um, you know doing it as part of their job or doing it as a volunteer, it's irrelevant. We're all everybody's working around the clock you know, across the world, and little bits of code are constantly being added. That all, in little bits and little bites, actually adds to the stability of code. I mean, that's just the code. And if you think about the actual organization and um, governance of the community itself, how many little... Um, if, if, little mechanisms it takes to actually manage this process. I mean, not, you know, withstanding the fact that, of course, Linus Tolls is a very strong leader as well. But, you know, over time, he's had to adapt. He's had um, trusted um, uh, lieutenants uh, for the American audience um, <laughs> put in as well. But not only that, the, the software that actually manages code production, like version control software and the compilers built into it. This is code that actually has built-in governance mechanisms. So all that change is constantly being managed right at the bottom level through code. And at the top level, you see the human um, touch coming in as well. Oh, that's wonderful. That was actually beautifully put. I like that very much. Dave, I'm, yes. Dave, I'm hogging the questions. Do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and so have you seen differences like where um, – or have, have you looked at this angle where like with, with Linux, you have uh, contributors that come from you know individual contributors, people that work for companies from like all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then there are other communities that are heavily driven by a single company. And have uh, you noticed at all any sort of changes or differences between the the those uh, or, um, open source communities and projects whenever they are very very broad or very narrow based upon the number of of uh, like companies or or the amount of influence behind each one? Um, I haven't done a, like a, a very um, structured comparative study, but. What I do know, and, and this is across a number of communities that I've been looking at and companies as well, and within companies, uh, you know, one company itself usually has, like Red Hat and like IBM and like many other companies, they have multiple projects going with open source communities, sometimes just at the level of um, contributing code, but sometimes they do engage in actually building a complete um, project of their own where they want to build a community around it. So, yes, there are differences. And I think what it's led to, the overarching idea that I'd really like to claim here, and then I'll break it down into a more a coherent answer to what you just asked me, is how the nature of communities themselves have changed. People are actually questioning what is a community, an open source, sorry, community today, because it has changed. It used to be largely volunteers, some company members, and even those company members, they were they were given a salary, of course, from their company, but they were not given the agenda to work in the community. This was yes, their yes. work, their hobby, the time that they spent to actually enjoy themselves, to learn new ideas from a community um, that was very diverse. However, now what we've noticed is that the most... Um, how do I call it? A successful is perhaps a very, um, you know, it can be a controversial world. But the communities that have managed to sustain themselves over time tend most often to be by inhabited by members that are actually community-led. And yes. this is why it's sort of driven my question about the healthy community. How do companies choose them? And what I learned in that study across a number of cases, and this was over two years, in fact now slightly over two years, having looked at this work um, and communities, what we, what we understood was that actually communities have signs of health, absolutely, which is what attracts companies to them. 
But then the company has to make very strategic decisions about, right, so if this community is healthy today, how do we absolutely make sure that tomorrow it remains healthy? Because now we have more vested interests in this community. We're putting in resources. And mm -hmm. interestingly enough, the moment they trigger putting in resources, we see other companies putting in resources as well. Because IBM putting resources into any small open source community means there must be health. And other companies yes. are thinking, what's interesting about this community? Why is IBM so interested? And I'm, I'm using names and I don't mean them you know, in, in any way. But so you know, these are the large companies that are actually working on, with open source a lot. And then HP might step in or, or HP might um, be the first mover. So that actually is a sign of help. But by the very act of putting in resources, and that can mean money, of course, that can be sponsorship schemes. And of course, most importantly, it's your human resources. So actually allowing your own employees to actually sit in on the community, work with them, contribute. So basically over time, what you do is you're beginning to manage that community. And in that process, you make that community sustainable, not just as a community in isolation, but as a larger ecosystem, because lots of other um, products and services tend to start coming around it. So it's been a very interesting phenomenon. What I found doing some some studies and here I won't name names of companies that I have done studies because I promised um, that I wouldn't name them in the first place. What we found is that when these companies initially moved into open source communities, they didn't really have a very clear idea of why they were actually doing this. Mm. And their step into this process was, well, it's open source seems to be bothering some large enterprises out there who have come out in full force saying this is a bad thing and it's, uh, you know, it, it could be trouble for the community, the projects, the um, software development industry even. And we all know the names of those companies. But, and they've all moved. They've all changed their whole perspective on, on open source, which is brilliant and interesting now. But at that time, many of these big companies then moved into open source basically as a retaliation or strategic move just to make sure that in the future, maybe this could be useful. And it's, it's been a trickle-down effect, and it's been very slow. At least this is what my study has shown me. It's very different for Red Hat, I'm quite sure. But it was different for companies that were traditional software development houses or hardware. Or, you know, they did hardware services and software. And then they moved into open source. They were very unaware about, about 15 years ago as to why they were doing this. It was just an interesting small-time move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I've seen, like you mentioned, IBM. Um, I. IBM has been very interesting. Like I'm very thankful for the contributions that they've made to open source in both, uh, uh, or I guess in time, talent, and treasure, right? Where, uh, and, and I know for, you bring up a good point there where like in, in the case of IBM, they uh, always love to have at least two suppliers for everything that they have. So whether it's disk drives or, or anything like that, they don't want to be squeezed by any one particular uh, vendor where it where they they get locked in. And I think one of the reasons why they contributed so heavily to Linux was that they wanted to make sure that um, you know a single operating system wouldn't uh, put them at a competitive disadvantage or or a weakened hand at the negotiation table. Um, and, and the other thing I've seen too is for at, like at Red Hat, one of the things that we like to do from a um, a community health standpoint is don't make it just about Red Hat. Uh, we try to build strong communities to en enable uh, contributions. So if you look at things like the OpenStack 
uh, Foundation, um, the Linux Foundation, uh, the Open Container Initiative. If it's only one vendor that is the one that is in charge of all of accepting all the code commits, the 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 motivation for an IBM or somebody else to want to volunteer talent to contribute to that project would be lessened uh, because it's they they don't have uh, it's hard for them to earn a seat at the table if their code uh, requests get rejected. You said something else there interesting, which which I'd like to tease out, which is you described this virtuous cycle where uh, a major company will will come in and through time, talent, and treasure. Uh, declare a particular open source project interesting, right? Uh, so uh, right off the top of my head, I'm thinking about IBM spending a billion dollars on Linux uh, back in back in 2000, and that was kind of uh, that was a wake up call for the rest of the industry. And suddenly, everyone rushed into the Linux community, thinking, "Well, IBM sees something interesting in here. They're, surely, I, I need to be making my own investment um, now. I need a Linux strategy." Um, and uh, that is that's something I haven't thought about very much, but it is a it, you are describing kind of a virtuous cycle where uh, if a large actor or a large influential actor um, enters a particular community um, that uh, they kind of de facto declare that that community is successful and thereby kind of paradoxically make that community successful. Absolutely. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is it's very interesting, isn't it? And that's one of my interesting findings, actually, along the way as to how this has actually happened. And it, it, but there has to be something about that community. This is what I did understand. So I know it sounds almost like, well, I, you know, if I'm a big company like IBM or HP, you know, one of these really big um, resourceful companies that have a large following around the world because they lots of suppliers and vendors and so on uh, are working with them. The fact that they make that first move, it's also based on what is usually sound judgment because if you are going to put that much money into something, there must be something there. So that's why the work that I tried to do and try to make sense of is what are the initial um, signals or the indicators of health for a community where a company, if it were to move into this area, why would it choose? Because if we, if we thought of um, an ideal world where there are multiple communities out there that are producing code of equally good functionality, right? So let's just say we keep the functionality as our control and, you know, every the, all the code is very, very similar. Then how does a company make that decision? So there have to be other signals, other factors that show its health, which is why a company, and it could be, you know, basically political. It could be the fact that the this community in particular only has one person leading the community and a lot of companies actually prefer that because instead of talking to a very large group of people who, you know, they don't know who they'll be interfacing with next time they send out an email on a mailing list, they know, you know, if they're talking to Linux, they could basically, I mean, under certain conditions, you know, write straight to Linux Torvalds and get a response. And what he says up to a point really goes for the entire community as well. So you bring the whole community on board through just talking to one person, through one discussion, rather than having lots of multiple people to deal with. So these have been very strategic decisions by companies over time as to how they choose the community in the first place. And yes, then it becomes an amazing signaling device to other companies and making that very same community sustainable over time. As you've learned more about um, open source communities and the, and the dynamics in them, um, what was the, as a, when you entered as a, as a relative novice, what was the most difficult idea to grasp or, or dynamic to understand? 
Um, okay, if we, if we think about when I actually started out, to be honest, can I just say my software coding skills were fairly limited, and so this might be very, very funny to you, but I had to spend, oh God, two years reading their mailing list to actually understand the community, and it wasn't just when they're arguing, because actually that was interesting, because I could actually understand that. What they argued over was probably the problem for me. I couldn't. So it was actually, you know, if you do an ethnography of any kind, and mine was not listed as an ethnography. I didn't call my work an ethnographic piece of work. And yet it really was. I had to live with that community at some level by just reading their emails. Over eight years of emails, I just kept reading them, you know, and trying to understand, and what does this word mean? And I had a, a dictionary. I had the hacker dictionary. I had all sorts of things around me as resources just to make sure that if I do use any, any terminology in my thesis, but also it was not just about being accurate in my thesis. It was, I was, I genuinely wanted to understand what they were talking about. You know, simple words like grep are not English words. Or, I mean, they're not normal words that people use in an academic world unless you're in a computer science department. So I'm just giving you an example. These were simple words where I actually had to look them up. So that's kind of state of novice that I was. And so, yes, that was the, the tricky part, just getting to understand them so that I could actually under, know what they were doing and then actually say something substantial about open source and Linux in particular. Yeah, that's interesting. I can imagine the vocabulary being challenging. I think it, probably Dave and I both take for granted that the number, uh, the amount of jargon and the number of show lists oh. the community has is uh, <laughs> pretty intimidating, I, I can imagine, and, and also constantly changing. And so it's got to make it challenging uh, for someone who isn't kind of steeped in it every day to, to kind of enter the world, right? Exactly. And, and what was worse was that I was actually looking at, um, and I still am, version control software. And then you had the whole, that was the whole period of time where there was, uh, I was studying the CVS versus BitKeeper war that was happening mm, on, you yeah. know, within the community because I backtracked. I, my PhD was, um, I did my PhD uh, after the t this time was happening, but I did a retrospective study, so studying all the email lists for eight years in the back, you know, in, in oh, what do you call it, uh, historically, and looking at all the emails that came up. Oh, God, that that's where I had to learn because it wasn't just about how open source developers talk to each other in software engineering language, but the harder part was being very specific about, um, you know, version control software and reading everything I could find on what is version control software. So the first models, you know, the initial ones and all the way down and then going to software engineering conferences to meet Walt Tishy. You know, it was just, yeah, an amazing journey. That's I will say that. It was being brilliant so far that's great yeah so maha i i know before we joined uh we were talking about the open organization and that um that you haven't read it yet so as as a door prize for joining the show we'll have to get you a copy of it and so you could reenact the dave and gunner show at home um but <laughs> the home edition and and uh but I, I think that uh, yeah, I think the open organization talking about red meat that this would be um, that book would be really really up your alley in terms of uh, more than just uh, uh, open source as part of a community, but how to apply open source principles inside of an organization, whether or not you're even doing open source uh, as even you know you could have companies uh, apply open organization principles, you know, even if they're a lumber company or something, you know, they're not even involved in IT at all in terms of, um, you know, we took a lot of, of the work that we've been doing on the, um, 
uh, in things of participating in open source communities and decision making and then applying that to our uh, organization. So it's uh, we'll, we'll absolutely make sure you get a copy of that. Thank you. I actually look forward to it because I, I would love to read it to be able to understand what are the differences from what I've understood from my um, interviews and data collection so far. And is, is that the same kind of impression? And Perhaps there might be some really nice detail there about Red Hat, which I would really look forward to. So thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, so Ma, as we wind down here, um, what is what is next for you? What's uh, what's coming up? Do you have any new projects coming up, or, or any new papers you have uh, you have in the can? Okay, I have a number of papers that um, one is on this community health idea, the other is on how. Um, Companies basically find new mechanisms to manage, and we can find different words for it, but often the literature in uh, management literature would talk about control. And it is interesting how companies have had to learn to let go a lot of their control and find new mechanisms for control, because letting go, it's, it's difficult. You know, the world is uncertain for companies, and they like to manage that uncertainty somehow. So what, how can they manage a community out there where the usual forms of control and management management like contracts especially contracts actually are removed from the picture because it's harder to have a contract with a diaphanous group of people out there so that's you know one of the, these are a couple of papers that are actually coming out and are under review at the moment um, so I'm really excited about those but can I just say what I'm really, really curious about and what I've been looking up for um, God knows how long and I've been trying to find academic work on it and I was wondering if both you and, and Dave might have uh, better resources in that respect, is the actual process of forking. Now, I know everybody knows forks happen and there are big cases out there that are really interesting, they're quite sexy as well, I mean, depending on which perspective, which side of the, the boat you're on, but for... <laughs> as an academic that is one phenomena that is actually still quite in the dark nobody's explored it in detail I mean other than a couple of people in, uh, in Finland and their studies have been very interesting but what I'd really like to go into is do a very in-depth study of different kinds of forks and exactly what, um, well, philosophically, but also um, very practically as well, what is a fork? Not just the idea, you know, some people will say if you have a due license on uh, software, that is also technically at some point or one level, it's a fork. So, but that's not a, a problematic fork unless you don't like due licenses. So how do we understand this phenomenon of forks and forking? So this is an um, actual project that I want to kick off, to be honest, rather than something that I've done too much work on. So I've only got a short paper on it so far that I'm going to go and present at the, um, the Open and User Innovation Conference to see what the academics think of my initial ideas in this area. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. And, and important work, too, because forks uh, have such a critical role in the proper functioning of, of communities. In many ways, that's, that is the only real... Uh, regulatory force in in open source mm -hmm. communities is the is the fork and the threat of a fork. Um, so that's I think that's tremendously important work. I'm excited to hear you're working on that. That's great. Yeah, and that's that's a great call to action. Like again, going back to for our audience, if they have uh, feedback, I'm sure they would love to get that to you. I'm, like again, going back to David A. Wheeler, who's a good friend of the show. He's probably sitting in his car right now, like like Horshack, raising his hand, and you know he he really wants to. <laughs> Uh, we want to have some strong opinions. It's amazing. I've looked at his stuff in the area of forking, so absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, so Mahat, thank you very much uh, for spending all this time with us. Uh, and uh, this was a 
fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to having you back on uh, and maybe talking a little bit more about the about the forking issue uh, once you're ready. Um, in the meantime, uh, maybe people can enjoy uh, some of your work. And uh, what website should they go to to find links uh, to some of your past work and some of your current projects? Well, they can go to dgshow.org and um, they'll find um, most of the interesting links that were my, of my better work. Um, you'll probably find that. <laughs> <laughs> a curated list of your better work. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, Maha, thank you. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, this was really it's, wonderful. It's been yeah, a real Thank you both to um, you, Gunnar, and Dave as well. I've actually, it's so interesting to talk about your work where people actually listen. And I, I really hope, um, yeah, that it was enjoyable and useful to other people. So thank you very much. Of course, great. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.